It's your radio, the future of radio. Welcome to Cinema Caroline, a cinema of the mind. To best enjoy the show, find a quiet, comfy spot and plug in your headphones. Adjust the sound so you can hear clearly and without strain. Now, let the sounds project a movie on the inside of your mind. Enjoy. Welcome to Cinema Caroline, a cinema of the mind's eye. Sit back and relax, use some headphones to remove distractions. Gently close your eyes and listen. Let the words and sounds guide your imagination. Today we are going to listen to a radio play abridged from the 1937 movie Lost Horizon. Ronald Coleman's distinctive voice stars in the radio play same as he did in the movie. This is the classic tale of Shangri-La, an earthly paradise found and lost. Wikipedia tells us that Lost Horizon is a 1937 American drama fantasy film directed by Frank Capra. The screenplay by Robert Riskin is based on the 1933 novel of the same title by James Hilton. Lost Horizon is the tale of people who found their Shangri-La, paradise on Earth, and lost it. The plot of our radio play is an abridged version of the full-length movie. Before returning to England to become the new foreign secretary writer, soldier, and diplomat Robert Conway has one last task in China, to rescue 90 Westerners in the city of Baskal. He flies out with the last few evacuees, just ahead of armed revolutionaries. Unbeknownst to the passengers, the pilot has been replaced and their aircraft hijacked. It eventually runs out of fuel and crashes deep in the Himalayan mountains, killing their abductor. The group is rescued by Chong and his men and taken to Shangri-La, an idyllic valley sheltered from the bitter cold. The contented inhabitants are led by the mysterious High Lama, played by Sam Jaffe. Initially anxious to return to civilization, most of the newcomers grow to love Shangri-La, including paleontologist Alexander Lovett, swindler Henry Barnard and bitter, terminally ill Gloria Stone, who miraculously seems to be recovering. Conway is particularly enchanted, especially when he meets Sandra, who has grown up in Shangri-La. However, Conway's younger brother George, and Maria, another beautiful young woman they find there, are determined to leave. Conway eventually has an audience with the High Lama and learns that his arrival was no accident. The founder of Shangri-La is said to be hundreds of years old, preserved, like the other residents, by the magical properties of the paradise he has created, but is finally dying and needs someone wise and knowledgeable in the ways of the modern world to keep it safe. Having read Conway's writings, Sandra believed he was the one, the Lama had agreed with her and arranged for Conway's abduction. The old man names Conway as his successor and then peacefully passes away. George refuses to believe the Lama's fantastic story and is supported by Maria. Uncertain and torn between love and loyalty, Conway reluctantly gives in to his brother and they leave, taking Maria with them, despite being warned that she is much older than she appears. After several days of grueling travel, she becomes exhausted and falls face down in the snow. When they turn her over, they discover that she had become extremely old and died. Her departure from Shangri-La had restored Maria to her true age. Horrified, George loses his sanity and jumps to his death. Conway continues on and eventually meets up with a search party sent to find him, 
although the ordeal has caused him to lose his memory of Shangri-La. On the voyage back to England, he remembers everything, he tells his story and then jumps ship. The searchers track him back to the Himalayas, but are unable to follow him any further. Conway manages to return to Shangri-La. The cast of the 1937 movie Lost Horizon included Ronald Coleman as Robert Conway Jane Wyatt as Sandra Bizet H.B. Warner as Chung Sam Jaffe as High Lama John Howard as George Conway Edward Everett Horton as Alexander P. Lovett Thomas Mitchell as Henry Barnard Margot as Maria Isabel Jewell as Gloria Stone David Clyde as Club Steward David Torrance as Prime Minister Hugh Buckler as Lord Gainsford Val Duran as Tullu Milton Owen as Fenner Richard Liu as Shanghai Airport Official Willie Fung as Bandit Leader and Victor Wong as another Bandit Leader And now our feature presentation A broadcast of Academy Award Theatre's 1946 radio production of Lost Horizon we have left the original advertising intact. But taken a break about halfway through the half-hour radio play as did the original radio broadcasters. Sit back and enjoy a spellbinding trip to a land of mystery, imagination, and magic. presents Academy Award. Every week, Squibb brings you Hollywood's finest, the great picture plays, the great actors and actresses, techniques and skills chosen from the honor roll of those who have won or been nominated for the famous Golden Oscar of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. of Tibet, the highest part of the Earth's surface. That snow-capped peak above you is Karakal, and below, in the valley of the blue moon, lies the lamasery of Shangri-La. It was a strange and incredible sight, a group of colored pavilions clinging to the mountainside, like flower petals impaled upon a crag. Overhead, a dazzling pyramid of snow, beautiful, terrifying. From the stormy cliffs on which we stood to the serene peace and quiet of Shangri-La was like a descent into another world. I came to this world across the mountains from India. We had been flying from Baskul to Peshwa on the northwest frontier. 
I was the British consul in Baskul, and my vice consul, a young fellow named Mallinson, was making the trip with me. Besides us, there were a few other passengers and the pilot. Our plane should have landed in Peshawar at about 5.30. We never arrived at our destination. Conway. I think. Conway, are you asleep? Mm -hmm. Well, what's that? What's the matter, Mallinson? Anything wrong? I'm not sure. I think our pilot's off his course. Off his course? Nonsense. No, no, no. Look, 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 look down there. Nothing but mountains as far as you can see. Oh, I don't recognize this part of the world at all. Yes. Yes, I should say you were right, Mallinson. The man's lost his way. What's that, Conway? Did you say we were lost? Lost? Oh, no, it's quite all right, everyone. There's nothing to be upset about, I'm sure. Well, still, there's nothing like finding out, is there? Look, shall I speak to the pilot, Conway? No, don't bother. I'll do it. Uh, you there, pilot. Open the panel. Open up. I want to speak to you. I advise that you ask no questions, please. Oh, certainly. Now look here. We want to know where we are. I advise that you be seated. I will not be seated. I'm uh, Mallinson, I don't know whether you've noticed it, but there's a revolver pointed directly at my chest. Under the circumstances, I think you'd better do as the gentleman suggests. After that, we sat in the darkness of the plane, each of us pretending to sleep. Suddenly, the plane lurched sharply. There was a loud rushing sound in my ears, and I realized that we were coming down. But fast, much too fast. Stumbled from the plane, badly shaken but uninjured. The cold was intense. A solid icy cold that you could touch with your fingertips. I knew we must be somewhere in Tibet, a vast barren region of wind-swept upland. Conway, come here. There's something the matter with this pilot fellow. I can't get a word out of him. I'll loosen the strap of his helmet. He's still breathing anyhow. There was little we could do for him. We watched his breathing grow more labored every hour. And as the early rays of the sun caught the summit of the mountain, the man died. I say, Conway. Yes? I've just been looking at that mountain. Am I seeing things or are those men coming toward us? They were men. A party of a dozen or more crawling like ants across the white face of the cliff. As they drew near, we saw they carried among them a hooded chair, and in it, a heavily robed figure, an elderly Chinese, gray-haired... Nishihara! I am from the Lamasery of Shangri-La. Well... My name is Chang. Uh, my name is Conway. Yes, Conway. Your ship is beyond repair? Oh, I'm afraid so. And anyway, our pilot is dead. So, you will come to Shangri-La. It is a hazardous journey, but the only place of habitation within a thousand miles. I insist upon acting as your guide. Oh, you're, you're very kind. Thank you. Of course, you know our stay won't be long. We want to return to civilization as soon as possible. 
Are you so certain you are away from it? There was a pass at about 20,000 feet, which we managed with the aid of long ropes. When we had struggled breathlessly to the top, I saw above us, shimmering in the rosy twilight, the loveliest mountain on earth. That snow-capped peak above you is Caracal, and below in the valley of the blue moon lies the lamasery of Shangri-La. I never exactly remembered how we arrived at the lamasery. The thin air had a dream-like texture, and I was conscious of a strange sensation, half mystical, half visual, of having reached at last some place that was an end, a finality. Did you hear? The Internet's number one show host is back. Hi, I'm Corey Lejeune. The Night Show with Corey Lejeune is live every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern. The Night Show with Corey Lejeune, only available on It's Your Radio. It's Your Radio, the future of radio. www.itsyourradio.com Wouldn't you like to do something cool and exciting? Whether you're a veteran show host, or someone who's never hit the airwaves, we, want, you. Join the family at It's Your Radio today. Visit the website at www.itsyourradio.com. All it takes is a computer with the internet and some software. Voice calls are powered by Skype. Create your dream show. Be the host you want to be. We are here to support you. The best part of It's Your Radio is 100% the people. They back you 100%. Get a free website and blog for as long as you're on the air. You're able to use a subdomain on your choice of itsyourradio.com or iyr.me. If you want to bring your own domain along, that's an option too. Every site is a beautiful creation from our in-house designers, the same team from Clearly Logic. From the server standpoint, we use the best servers powered by a Ford account. We're a huge family, really. So, you get to host a show, you get a blog, and you get to be part of a family. It's your radio, as you covered from broadcast to podcast. What more could you want? Join the family today. Do something amazing with us. It's your radio. The future of radio. Shangri-La, I learned, was a sort of monastery whose inhabitants ruled the natives in the valley below. Those in full Lamahood numbered about 50, and their prevalent belief was in moderation, the virtue of avoiding excess of all kinds. These things I learned the first night, 
as I stood with Chang on the broad balcony overlooking the valley. There is something more you would like to know, Mr. Conway? Please. I want to know, uh, this morning when you found us, were you setting out on a journey? No. Well, then you came there deliberately to intercept us. That suggests that you must have known we were coming. The interesting question is, how? You are very clever, but not entirely correct. Therefore, I should counsel you not to worry your friends with these abstract discussions. No, they want something more concrete. They want to know exactly how long you're going to keep us here. There will be certain unavoidable delays. How long? The difficulties of the trip, obtaining the necessary porter. No, no, no. How long? Please. You may tell your friends a few months. But you don't guarantee it, huh? Is that what you mean? Well, for myself, I, I can't say I shall mind a great deal. It's a new and interesting experience. In time to come, you may find it even more interesting. Good night. In the days that followed at Shangri-La, I gave myself over to a rich and growing enchantment. In the petal-colored buildings which dotted the mountain, I recognized priceless treasures of art. Paintings and sketches, exquisite ceramics, preserved for more than a thousand years. In the spacious library, I discovered the great literature of the present and of centuries past. One morning, I stood beside a lotus pool in an open pavilion of the Lamasery. In an archway behind me, a young girl was seated at a harpsichord, a girl in Chinese dress. Her jet black hair was drawn tightly back and braided, her mouth was small and pink. She was like a delicately painted miniature. That was very lovely. You are pleased. More than pleased. Oh, uh, my name is Hugh Conway. They call me Lotsen. Lotsen. And do you live below in the valley? No. I live here. At the Lamasery? Yes. But as yet, I have not attained the full lamahood. You mean, you are a lama? Yes. <laughs> I'm a bit confused. I thought only men could be lamas. They will tell you, when you have been here longer, that in the lamahood, there are no distinctions between a man and a woman. But you, you're hardly more than a child. Shall I play for you again? Please. Good morning. Oh, morning, Chang. You are pleased with Lo Tsen? She plays beautifully. She has studied for many, many years. Well, how could she? How old is Lo Tsen? Well, I... I'm afraid I cannot tell you. One night... When the moonlight fell on Shangri-La, bathing the pavilion in a sea of blue... I am sorry to disturb you at this hour, but I bring you important news. Yes, Chang? I congratulate you, sir. Tonight you are to be received by the High Lama. As I followed Chang through the Lamasery, I knew I was on the threshold of some great discovery. Pattering in front of me, he mounted a spiral staircase to a door 
which opened noiselessly before us. Chang left silently. As I became accustomed to the gloom, I saw sitting before me a small and wrinkled man. He was motionless. A faded antique portrait in Chinese dress. His face thin and drawn tight over the frame of his skull. And his eyes... I felt dizzy beneath the gaze of those ancient eyes. You are Mr. Conway. I am. It is a pleasure to see you, Mr. Conway. Please sit down. I am an old man and can do no one any harm. I feel it a great honor to be received by you. Thank you. Chang tells me you have been asking many questions about our community and its affairs. Oh, yes. I am very much interested. The history of Shangri-La begins rightly in the city of Peking in the year 1719. For it was then that four friars set out on a long and perilous journey by Lan Chao and Koko Noor. Three died on the way, and the fourth was not far from death, when by accident he stumbled into the rocky defile that remains today the only practical approach to our valley of the blue moon. There, to his joy and surprise, he found a friendly population who bade him welcome. Quickly he recovered his health and began to preach his mission. His name was Father Perrault. half a century, Father Perrault labored with his hands like any other man, tilling his own garden and learning from the inhabitants as well as teaching them. Then, in the year 1789, news descended to the valley that Father Perrault was dying at last. He gathered his friends and servants round him and bade them all farewell. But the end was not yet. He lay for many weeks without speech or movement, and then he began to recover. He was then a hundred and eight. What he had told me was not beyond belief, but as he went on, I was held speechless with wonder. It was 14 years later, he told me, that a wanderer found his way to Father Perro's monastery, an Austrian named Henschel. A great friendship sprang up between the two, and Henschel stayed on. It was then they had a wild, fantastic dream. Art treasures from Europe and Asia were purchased with the valley's gold and stored at Shangri-La. The library was filled with all the great works of the world. And later it was decided to admit travelers and strangers who had lost their way. In the years that followed, strangers did come. 
In 1910, Henshaw died. In 1910? But you said he came here in 1803. There had been a quarrel about some quarters. Henshaw had just told one of our guests of the important proviso that governs their reception. And perhaps you are wondering, Mayor Conway, what that proviso may be. I think I can already guess. We are to stay here all of our lives. And can you guess anything else? Seems impossible. And yet impossible as it may be, I know that it's the truth. What is my son? That you are still alive, Father Barrow. It was almost beyond belief. The High Lama who sat beside me had lived for nearly two and a half centuries. Our coming was no accident, he said. There had been no travelers to Shangri-La for 20 years. Many lamas had died. And our pilot had been sent out into the world to bring new life to the lamasery. Then there is death at Shangri-La. Yes, my son. There are many of us who live no more than a hundred years. And if one of your lamas were to leave the Valley of the Blue Moon... He would die. His years would fall on his shoulders like a great burden... And he would die very soon, an old, old man. Lutzen. You have seen the High Lama. Lutzen, when did you come here? How long ago? I was betrothed. To a prince of Turkestan. We were traveling to Kashgar to meet him when my carriers lost their way in the mountains. When did this happen? In 1864. I was 18. 18? Then now you The missionaries are... of Shangri-La found us. They brought us here. I never saw the man I was to marry. Then in all these years, you have never known the meaning of love. Lutzen... Is there no love at Shangri-La? Is there no room for love at Shangri-La, Lotsen? She didn't answer. But I saw a faint flush rising in her ivory cheek. And then I was aware that someone had entered the pavilion and was watching us. It was Mallinson. One night at midnight, I was summoned to the presence of the High Lama. Tell me, my son, have you been happy at Shangri-La? Quite happy, Father Perrault. And what of Mr. Melanson? Will he learn to be content also? I'm afraid he's going to be a problem. He's going to be your problem. Why mine? Because, my son, I am going to die. You... Father Perrault. Yes, we are all mortal even here in the Valley of the Blue Moon. But I must feel at rest before I die. And that is why I sent for you tonight. You do me a great honor, Father. I have waited for you, my son, for a long time. My son, there is a great storm gathering in the world, a black fury which will not spend itself for many years. 
It may rage till every flower of culture is trampled and all human things are leveled in vast chaos. But I believe that you will live through the storm. Beyond that, my vision weakens. But I see at a great distance a new world stirring in the ruins, seeking its lost and legendary treasures. And they will all be here, my son, hidden behind the mountains in the valley of the blue moon. And you will be here to give them to the hopeful world. My son, I place in your hands the heritage and destiny of Shangri-La. Hailana stopped speaking. The glow in his eyes faded. Presently it came to me as in a dream. The High Lama was dead. Conway! Conway, I've been waiting for you. I say, what's the matter, Conway? Are you ill? Oh, I'm just tired. Well, pull yourself together, man. The porters are waiting for us. The porters? It's all arranged. They're going to take us back to Peshawar. Yeah, but... I want to take Lode Sen out of this dreary place. Hurry, Conway, hurry. But but you can't. I'm in love with Lode Sen, and she loves me. She's coming with us. Lode Sen mustn't go. It's impossible. Why? Why is it impossible? Well, you must take my word for it. Lode Sen must never leave here. Conway, the two of us can't manage the cliff. We must have your help. I want to get away from this place, and Lode Sen, too. She's young. Doesn't she count? Lode Sen is not young. Not young? You're raving, man. It's the truth. Her beauty is a fragile thing. We can only live where fragile things are loved. Take her away from this valley and she'll fade away like an echo. Malinson, listen to me. I tried then to tell him the secret of Shangri-La. He looked at me as though I were mad. And as I read the disbelief in his eyes, I began to doubt myself. It was too incredible even me to believe. And then, Lotsen came to me. You will help us, please. We need you. Lotsen, do you wish to leave Shangri-La? Yes. Well, you know, you, you understand the risk. I love him. If he is not with me, I would die here. For hours, I paced the balcony. I couldn't tell whether I had been mad and was now sane or had been sane for a time and was now mad again. But always before me were the wistful, pleading eyes of a little Manchu girl. And I knew that whatever was her fate, I must share in it. That morning, with the wind roaring through the jagged cliffs, we made the descent from Shangri-La. Travel toward the east. Malinson, the girl, and I. And then our porters began to desert. One by one they disappeared. Until there were just the three of us. Creeping like snails across a desert wilderness. And then for a long time, we were only two. Malinson had died. First, I tried to believe it was the hardship of our journey which had changed, Lotsen. I am tired. I can go no further. We must go on, Lotsen. I am tired. 
There. Look. Look, that must be the last range. That mountain. You see, Lutzen? It is too far. I cannot see so far. One more step, Lucien. One more step. One more. One more. No. You must go on alone from here. Her eyes were depthless shadows. Her skin drawn, the color of ancient parchment. Her cheekbones. Lutzen! Lutzen! I am old. I am so old. They found us on the road to Chungkiang, and we were taken to the hospital there. Lutzen, they told me later, Lutzen died that same night. The oldest woman they had ever seen. The storm of which Father Pero warned me still rages. Not yet has the Christian ethic been fulfilled when the meek shall inherit the earth. But Shangri-La has a heritage to cherish and bequeath with such wisdom as men will need when their passions are spent. Soon... I hope I will return. Somewhere beyond Lhasa, on the high roof of the world, I seem to picture a long plateau running north. And far away a mountain, rising white against the sky. I hope to find it again, for this, I think, is Karakal. And beyond is Shangri-La. And the valley of the blue moon. Next week, another great picture. This is Hugh Brundage bidding you good night until next week at the same time when the House of Squid invites you to join us for Academy Awards. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Wikipedia offers some info on the life of Ronald Coleman whose voice and presence is so striking and memorable in Lost Horizon. Ronald Charles Coleman who was born February 9, 1891 and who died May 19, 1958, was an English actor, popular during the 1930s and 1940s. He won an Academy Award for Best Actor for a Double Life and received nominations for Random Harvest and Bulldog Drummond and Condemned. He starred in several classic films, including A Tale of Two Cities, Lost Horizon, The Prisoner of Zinda and The Talk of the Town. Ronald Coleman's early life, he was born in Richmond, Surrey, England, as Ronald Charles Coleman, the second son and fourth child of Charles Coleman and his wife Marjorie Reed Fraser. 
His siblings included Eric, Edith, and Marjorie. He was educated at boarding school in Littlehampton, where he discovered that he enjoyed acting despite his shyness. He intended to study engineering at Cambridge, but his father's sudden death from pneumonia in 1907 made it financially impossible. He became a well-known amateur actor and was a member of the West Middlesex Dramatic Society in 1908-1909. He made his first appearance on the professional stage in 1914. Coleman in the First World War, while working as a clerk at the British Steamship Company in the City of London, he joined the London Scottish Regiment in 1909 as a Territorial Army soldier, and on being mobilised on the outbreak of the First World War, crossed the English Channel to France in September 1914 to take part in the fighting on the Western Front. On October 31, 1914, at the Battle of Messines, Coleman was seriously wounded by shrapnel in his ankle, which gave him a limp that he would attempt to hide throughout the rest of his acting career. As a consequence, he was medically discharged from the British Army in 1915. Ronald Coleman's stage career flourished from 1916 to 1922 or so when he went into silent films. At the Booth Theatre in New York in January 1921 the director Henry King saw him and engaged him as the leading man in the 1923 film The White Sister opposite Lillian Gish. He was an immediate success. Thereafter Coleman virtually abandoned the stage for film. He became a very popular silent film star in both romantic and adventure films, among them The Dark Angel, in 1925, Stella Dallas, in 1926, in 1927, and the winning of Barbara Worth, in 1926, his dark hair and eyes and his athletic and writing ability led reviewers to describe him as a Valentino type. He was often cast in similar, exotic roles. Towards the end of the silent era, Coleman was teamed with Hungarian actress Vilma Benke under Samuel Goldwyn and the two were a popular film team rivaling Greta Garbo and John Gilbert. Although he was a huge success in silent films, he was unable to capitalize on one of his chief assets until the advent of the talking picture, his beautifully modulated and cultured voice also described as a bewitching, finely modulated, resonant voice. Coleman was often viewed as a suave English gentleman, whose voice embodied chivalry and mirrored the image of a stereotypical English gentleman. Commenting on Coleman's appeal, English film critic David Shipman stated that Coleman was the dream lover, calm, dignified, trustworthy. Although he was a lithe figure in adventure stories, his glamour, which was genuine, came from his respectability, he was an aristocratic figure without being aloof. His first major talkie success was in 1930, when he was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor for two roles Condemned and Bulldog Drummond. He thereafter appeared in a number of notable films, Raffles in 1930, The Masquerader in 1933, Clive of India and A Tale of Two Cities in 1935, Under Two Flags, The Prisoner of Zenda and Lost Horizon in 1937, If I Were King in 1938 and Random Harvest and the Talk of the Town in 1942. He won the Best Actor Oscar in 1948 for A Double Life. At the time of his death, Coleman was contracted by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer for the lead role in Village of the Damned. However, Coleman died and the film became a British production starring George Sanders, who had married Coleman's widow, Benita Hume. Ronald Coleman's radio and television career, 
beginning in 1945, Coleman made many guest appearances on the Jack Benny program on radio, alongside his second wife, stage and screen actress Benita Hume. Their comedy work as Benny's perpetually exasperated next-door neighbors led to their own radio comedy program. An excerpt from The Jack Benny Show follows. And now a segment from The Jack Benny Show, featuring baseball great Leo DeRocher as a guest and iconic actor Ronald Coleman. Jack Benny's long-suffering butler, Rochester deals with Benny's famous tight-fistedness. trick that time, a grand slam. Boss, a telegram just came for you. For me? Did you give the boy a tip? Yeah, you owe me a quarter. A quarter? You mean to tell me you tipped him a quarter? I knew this would happen, so I made him give me a receipt. <laughs> a receipt? Let me see it. Here it is, boss. Rochester, this is a carbon copy. I sent the original to my lawyer. <laughs> what? Hey, Jackson, why don't you just read the wire? Maybe it'll take your mind off of the two bits. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Dear Jack, arriving Los Angeles to spend week with you. Should be at your house Wednesday evening about 8. Signed, Leo DeRocha. Well, do you hear that, fellas? Leo DeRocha is going to spend a week with me and he arrives Wednesday. He... Hey, that's tonight. You guys are really in for a treat. No kidding. Hey, Jackson... Is this the Leo DeRocha who manages the Brooklyn Dodgers? That's him. You know, I spent most of my vacation traveling with his team. My mother used to play with the Giants. <laughs> what? She had to quit when I was born. Dennis, please. And you know, fellas... Fellas... You know, but I really, I, I love baseball so much. It was a thrill traveling with that team. I got to like every player. Gee, I hope I live to see the day when the Brooklyn Dodgers win the World Series. You know, Jackson, at your age, that ain't a bad wish. <laughs> well, I'd still like to... Hey, be... wait a minute. Hey. Uh, if you're such a good friend of DeRocha, then why were you always rooting for St. Louis? That was the St. Louis Browns in the American League. In the National League, I always rooted for the Dodgers. Oh, Rochester! Yes, boss? When Mr. DeRocha arrives, he'll probably be hungry, so you better pick him something to eat. Okay. Uh, what have you got in the refrigerator? White enamel and ice cubes! <laughs> Rochester, I happen to know there's some hamburger in the freezing compartment. Now get it out and make some fresh coffee, too. Yes, sir. Oh, by the way, we're all out of sugar. No sugar. Hmm. Well, Rochester, go over to the Ronald Coleman's next door and borrow some. Okay, boss. Oh, 
Oh, Benita, Benita. Yes, Ronnie. Who was that at the door? It was Mr. Benny's butler, Manchester. <laughs> well, what did Benny want this time? Just a cup of sugar. Never have I seen such a man. Borrow, borrow, borrow. Oh, darling, don't let it upset you. He only borrows trivial things. Trivial things? Yes. Like yesterday, he was out working on his lawn, and he came over to borrow some oil for the lawnmower. Well, did you let him have it? I thought it best to. After all, it's our lawnmower. <laughs> That man. Just listen to the things he's gotten from us since the first of the month. One cup of sugar, one can of oil, one lawnmower, one mix master, two slices of bacon, two razor blades, three onions, one brown shoelace. <laughs> one card table, two decks of cards, four bridge chairs, one Dr. Scholl's foot pad. <laughs> a monkey wrench, a screwdriver, one band-aid, small size. Two light bulbs and, uh, uh, and, uh, well, I know I've forgotten several things. It's too difficult memorizing every item. Oh, why don't you write them down? He's got my fountain pen, too. <laughs> my new fountain pen, the one I just received from England. Oh, Ronnie, you mean the one that writes under T? <laughs> Yes, that's the one. Now, let me see. What else did he borrow? Oh, well, let it go. It's not important. Oh, yes, it is. I want to remember them. Now, let's see. There was an umbrella, uh, a half pound of coffee, the comic section from the Sunday Times. Uh, I never did find out whether or not Dick Tracy knocked off goggles. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I'll call C. Aubrey Smith. He'll tell us what happened. <laughs> Good. Good. Oh, and another thing Benny borrowed. Just the other night, three Tootsie Rolls. <laughs> didn't borrow them. Nita, I distinctly saw you give him those Tootsie Rolls. I know, but it was Halloween and he knocked on the door and said trick or treat. <laughs> yes. Imagine him rolling up his pants legs and knocking on our door and saying, please give me some candy, some cake or some pie, and if you don't do it, I'll spit in your eyes. <laughs> Then he curtsied and his toupee fell off. Well, let's forget about him. Oh, would you like to go to a movie tonight? Oh, I don't know what's playing. I'll look in the paper and see. As um, the Jolson story, Margie, Nobody Lives Forever, Dark Mirror, and Undercurrent. That's about all that's showing at the first-run theatres. Well, check the neighborhood theatres. Last Horizon must be playing somewhere. <laughs> oh, how many more times do we have to sit through it? <laughs> I'll get it. Oh, hello. I'm sorry to bother you again, Miss Coleman. It's quite all right. Well, what is it, Manchester? Well, Mr. Benny wants to serve baked potatoes tonight, and he's all out of potatoes. 
We'll need four of you, Mr. Bell. All right, I'll get them for you. And Mr. Benny says he'll only need a half pound of butter this time. Well, all right, just wait here. Uh, oh, I say, uh, uh, don't you, sir? <laughs> yes, Mr. Coleman? I'm quite curious about something. Is ours the only house in the neighborhood that Mr. Benny borrows from? Oh, no, sir. Do you know the people who live in that big house on the corner? The one with the birdhouse in the front lawn? Yes. Well, uh, well, we owe the birds a half dozen eggs. <laughs> well, tell me, uh, as you know, Mr. Benny has borrowed so many things. Do you think he ever intends repaying us? Oh, I'm quite sure he does. You're mentioned in his will. Mentioned <laughs> in his will? Yeah, you come right after the birds. <laughs> Ah, that's life for you. One day the star of Lost Horizon, the next day second billing to a sparrow. <laughs> you know, I think that... There you are, Manchester. I've got everything for you. Four potatoes, half a pound of butter, and four napkins. But I didn't ask for any napkins. I know. I thought I'd save you another trip. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Mrs. Coleman. Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, how long is Benny going to keep this up? When is it going to stop? I'm asking you, when is this going to stop? That's all I want to know. That's all I want to know! <laughs> well, I'm going to find some way to... Well, I'll get it this time. Yes? Pardon me, uh, does Jack Benny live here? I'm Leo DeRocher. Mr. Mr. Benny lives next door, the house on the left. Good night. Oh, thanks. Uh, I'll say... Say, haven't I seen you someplace before? I know the movies. You're Ronald Coleman, aren't you? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Mr. Benny's house is that one right over there. Good night. Gosh, you're wonderful in the movies. I loved you in Lost Horizon. Uh, Mr. Benny's house... It... You did? Well... <laughs> come in, come in. <laughs> I want you to meet my wife. Thank you. Oh, Benita... Benita, come here. I want you to meet someone who, who loved me in... Uh, I mean, I want you to meet a friend of mine. Oh, yes, darling. Who is it? I'd like you to meet Mr. Leo DeRocher. You don't mean Lippy. Lippy? Yes, that's my nickname. <laughs> well, then you, then you two have met before. Oh, no, no, no. But I've read about him in the papers. I think it was in connection with the last election. He was elected mayor of Brooklyn or something. <laughs> No, no, Mrs. Coleman. I manage the Brooklyn Dodgers. Brooklyn Dodgers? Yeah, them bums. You know who them bums are, don't you? Well, we should. We live next door to one. <laughs> Ronnie. Anyway, Benita, the Brooklyn Dodgers is a baseball team. Thanks. Why, you're visiting Mr. Benny. He's an important man in baseball, too. Benny, an important man in baseball? He must be. He kept Greenberg on third for two years. Oh, <laughs> oh no, that's just a gag. Anyway, my visit to Benny is strictly a social one. He's one of my best friends. Oh, so you're the guest they're expecting for dinner. I sure am. Look, uh, would you do us a favor, please? Uh, when they pass the butter, take it easy. It's ours. <laughs> I'll do my best, Mr. Coleman. You know, I haven't seen Benny since the baseball season ended in September. And uh, I was wondering... Excuse me for interrupting, Leo, but I just noticed you belong to the Elks, don't you? The Elks? Yes, those Elks' teeth hanging on your watch chain. No, no, these are umpires' teeth. Umpires? <laughs> oh, are umpires' teeth? 
animals? In Brooklyn, yes. Oh, Vanita, he's only joking. An umpire is an official in a baseball game. He makes the decisions and even has the power to remove a player from the game and send him to the showers. My, how sanitary. <laughs> well, I'd better be running along. I'm kind of anxious to see Jack again. Uh, before you go, Leo, I want to tell you that I felt badly when your team failed to win the pennant. Oh, well, that's baseball. You just can't figure it. One day you're great, and the next day you stink. Oh, pardon me, Mrs. Cole. <laughs> Quite all right. Mr. Coleman's pictures weren't all great either. <laughs> well, anyway, I brought my team in second, and it's great to know that we still have thousands and thousands of loyal fans. Ah, you certainly have, Leo. Well, I'd better be running along. I know Benny's waiting for me. You know, it's rather strange. If you and Benny are such great friends, then why was he so anxious for St. Louis to win the pennant? St. Louis? Yes. I remember he used to sit by the radio and cheer every time St. Louis got a hit. What? Let me get this straight. Did I hear you say that Benny was rooting for St. Louis? Yes. Yes, that's right. You're sure there isn't some mistake? No, no. You, you heard him, didn't you, Benita? Yes. Hmm. Well, I'd better run along. It was nice meeting you folks. Good night, Leo. you do that? A fine pal you are, rooting for St. Louis. St. Louis? But, Leo, that was the St. Louis Browns in the American League. Oh, I'm so sorry, pal. Here, let me help you out. Oh, thanks. Hey, you know what, Leo? You almost had another tooth for your chain. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the majority of American hospitals now have patients waiting to be admitted. And the situation in many areas is growing steadily worse because of insufficient nursing personnel. All young women between the ages of 17 and 35 who are high school or college graduates are urged to apply for admission in any one of the 1,300 accredited schools of nursing. Apply to the one nearest you. Thank you. Jack will be back in just a minute. But first, here is my good friend, Mr. F. E. Boone. At 59, American. Let the chant of the tobacco auctioneer remind you that year in, year out, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. And in a cigarette, it's the tobacco that counts. Independent tobacco experts, auctioneers, buyers, and warehousemen really know tobacco. Mr. William D. Whitley of Henderson, North Carolina, has been an independent tobacco auctioneer for 18 years, and he said... I speak as an eyewitness when I say that season after season, I've seen the makers of Lucky Strike buy fine, ripe tobacco. That good, fragrant tobacco that makes a fine smoke. I've smoked Luckies myself for 13 years. Quote, I've seen the makers of Lucky Strike buy fine, ripe tobacco. Unquote. Yes, at market after market, independent tobacco experts like Mr. Whitley can see the makers of Lucky Strike consistently select and buy that fine, that light, that naturally mild tobacco. Fine, light, naturally mild tobacco. Yes, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco, and fine tobacco means real deep-down smoking enjoyment for you. Remember, L-S-M-F-T. Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. 
So smoke that smoke of fine tobacco, Lucky Strike. So round, so firm, so fully packed, so free and easy on the draw. So that's what happened last Wednesday night. Yes, dear. Well, I'm glad that Mr. Benny and Mr. DeRocher made up. So am I. And you'd never know Jack had a black eye. Well, how'd he get rid of it so fast? He sent Leo over to the Coleman's to borrow a steak for it. Oh, <laughs> what do you know? Well, you better run along now, dear. You'll be late for rehearsal. Uh, goodbye, darling. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Wasn't that a great excerpt from the Jack Benny Show? That episode aired November 17, 1946 according to Times Past Old Time Radio's website. Open your eyes now, stand up, stretch. Reflect upon the movie your mind created from sound and ideas. Thank you for visiting Cinema Caroline, a cinema of the mind's eye. You have been listening to Cinema Caroline, Cinema of the Mind. You've just listened to an IYR original program. It's your radio, the future of radio.